Welcome to the Mercy Comments podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Hi everyone, it's a privilege to preach the Word of God. And um, last week, Joel reminded us, we're in our series in the book of Hebrews called Better. Joel reminded us that Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and that he does not minister in a temple made by hands, that he is the perfect priest, he is the eternal priest, and he is the priest that has given us and continues to give us access. And so I'm gonna continue from Hebrews 8. I'm gonna be reading out of the ESV, Hebrews 8 verse one to seven. The writer says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were here on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I want to thank you that what we desire to do every time we gather, whether it's worship or preaching of your word, is create a context for encounter. I want to thank you that this is not an academic exercise, this is not an intellectual one, this is a spiritual exchange. And without the spirit enlivening the word, um, we're just giving a lecture. So I pray for the power of your spirit for me as I deliver the word, and I pray for the power of your spirit uh, for my brothers and sisters as we make adjustments have revelations, and understand what it is that you've called us to. One of the things that I think is challenging for us to kind of come to terms with is that Jesus' priesthood is in the present tense. For a lot of us that have history in the church, we understand the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Um, And we understand that we have union with Christ because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. And we understand that it was his death that paid the penalty for our sins. It was his resurrection that showed that he had the power over sin, death, and Satan. And it was his ascension that led to us receiving the Holy Spirit. But I think we only live in the partial truth that we have an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Um, And that Jesus right now is the only person that has the desire, the ability, and the capacity to care for and minister to us the way in which we want to and the way in which we deserve to be. You may have people in your life that desire to care for you but don't have the ability. Uh, You may have people that have the ability but no desire. You may have the people that have both of those things but not the capacity. They just don't have the ability to be able to stretch themselves that thin. Jesus is the eternal priest He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, mediating on your behalf. Uh, The two um, primary or the two um, 
the, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are praying to the Father right now for us. I was talking to Karen, we had a difficult week, it was Jim's memorial on Sunday, and I'm like, how does that help you? Like, in a practical way, how does the fact that Jesus is praying for you help you? She says, because I don't know what to say or what to think right now, but I know that he does, and he's praying for me. It's such a gift to know that he is continually engaged in our lives. When Jesus says it is finished, what he meant was the work in order for him to complete his priesthood, that's something to offer what the writer is talking about. Every priest has to have something to offer, that Jesus offered himself wholly and completely. That is what he's talking about. Now, the Israelites believed that um, that heaven and earth kind of interlocked around certain sacred spaces, and one of those sacred spaces was the, was the temple. But only one day a year would that kind of portal be opened where God and earth would be able to communicate and exchange with each other. On the Day of Atonement, in the Holy of Holies, the high priest would enter that space and the presence of God would be there. And it wasn't always necessarily... Um, secure, like if the high priest wasn't holy enough, if he hadn't offered the sacrifices, if something was wrong, there was the possibility of things going badly wrong. And so they understood that. The other thing that we know is that the writer of Hebrews is talking before the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. We know that simply because he's talking about the temple being temporal, um, not eternal. And so if the temple had been destroyed by that time, he surely would have mentioned it in his letter. And so when he's talking to the Israelites about the temple and the Holy of Holies, they have a very clear picture in their mind of what he's talking about because it's there. They can see it. And yet what he's talking about and he says is it is a copy or a shadow. The temple and the priestly operations were a copy or a shadow. And what does that mean? I took a, a drive down to Oceanside uh, yesterday. A couple of us went there to do a workshop on the Spirit-Empowered Church. And uh, I remember taking my girls to the San Diego Wild Kingdom Animal Park, whatever they, whatever they call it, okay? And, and I remember taking them there, and here's, here's a photo of that, right? Um, just so you can see, these are the enclosures over there. So at night, all the animals go back into the enclosure, they're fed, they don't actually hunt each other. And I mean, this is a pretty small space um, to have all of these animals in that area. My girls came back from the San Diego Wild Kingdom National whatever park. Um, they'd seen a koala bear, which appears in Australia. They'd seen a tiger. They'd seen, you know, it's, it's basically just a big zoo. And they were fascinated. They were like, this is amazing. And I'm like, no, no, no. This is not amazing. Kiona, you were born in Africa. <laughs> this is a copy and shadow of what is really true. And so a couple of years later, we, we took them there. Um, and this is Solomon, and he was our guide. And so he took us into the savannah, and we had sundowners. For those of you who don't know what sundowners are, it's a non-alcoholic beverage or alcoholic beverage, depending on your age, that you have while you watch the sun go down. And there are animals around us. We don't know that they're there, but they're there. We had the privilege of seeing this little guy being born um, and his mother licking all the stuff off him. We had the privilege of being 
um, cornered by these rhino that are literally living and hunting in there. And then we spotted a lion um, in that space. That is the reality of what the San Diego Wild Kingdom Animal Park is trying to, to show. It is, th there are similarities. There are animals there. There are similarities in that they kind of roam around. But in a sense, that's where it ends because the experience is 100% difference. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is, guys, you have a shadow, a copy. You have the San Diego Wild Kingdom Animal Park. And God is offering you Africa to go out there and to see what this is really like. There are similar elements to what is happening in the temple, but the experience is 100% completely different. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about how different that is. But today, I wanted to kind of retreat, do a, a flashback to the birth of what he's talking about. And this is the birth of the new temple of God. This is when the church was established. This is the time in Acts when, as I read this portion of scripture where he talks about Moses receiving from God the pattern that he needed to construct the tent and the tabernacle was like, I thought to myself, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. I heard it when a guy called Stephen was telling the same story in Acts. And we see that the birth of the church caused a massive conflict with the current priestly class. In fact, the birth of the church caused major conflict with the high priest that actually brought Stephen in and said, listen, tell me about the trouble that you're causing. Now, this is not a new issue. This is not a unique issue that the writer of Hebrews is trying to deal with, the matter of temples, high priests, who was ethnically, spiritually, and practically a child of God, plagued the church right from the time of Jesus. In fact, the, the Pharisees said to Jesus, who said to them, you're not sons of God, he said, we are sons of Abraham. We don't even know who your father is. They were insulting him because they, they, were, they, was, they were calling him illegitimate. He said, we are sons of Abraham. And the Jewish people would, would place their faith and their hope in the fact that they were descendants of the sons of Abraham. Now, the writer, 30 years later, is dealing with the same issues that got John the baptizer killed, that got Jesus killed, and we'll see that gets Stephen killed. And this is why I love the Bible, because it is so trustworthy. We're not building our whole faith on one or two little obscure texts or sayings. This is the story of God that is ratified and repeated multiple times through different sources. And so let's go back to see how the new temple of God was formed. In Acts 6, Verse 7, it says that God's word continued to grow and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased significantly. Even a large group of priests embraced the faith. Now, Jesus is now resurrected. He has shown himself to the disciples. He has ascended and the Spirit of God has fallen on the church and created the new temple of God. Stephen, a deacon, is now charged and he's brought before the council and the high priest. In verse 13, before the council, they presented false witnesses who testified, this man never stops speaking against this holy place, pointing to the temple and the law. In fact, we heard him say, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, will destroy this place and alter the customary practices that Moses gave us. Everyone seated in the council stared at Stephen 
And then they saw that his face was radiant, just like an angel's. The high priest. Now remember, Jesus is our high priest. This is an earthly high priest. This high priest says, are these accusations true? And Stephen starts to tell the most amazing sermon that is basically the study guide of Hebrews and literally the study guide of the whole story of God. And he starts right in Abraham and he tells them that actually God chose Abraham not because he was Jewish. In fact, he makes a point of pointing out that Abraham did not know God, that God chose Abraham and said that you will be the father of many nations and through you all nations will be blessed. He continues to tell the story of how the Israelites landed up in Egypt and how Um, Moses led them out. He continues to tell the story of how Moses received um, the law from God and tells the story of how Aaron was the initial high priest that was chosen by God. And then we get to verse 44, and he starts talking about the tent of testimony. Now, the tent of testimony was the tabernacle um, that the Israelites put together in order to worship God. It It was a copy of a copy of a copy. And so in the desert, we had what the ultimate temple would look like. The temple, we have what ultimately our relationship with Jesus looks like. The tent of testimony, this is Stephen talking, was with our ancestors in the wilderness. Moses built it just as he had been instructed by the one who spoke to him and according to the pattern that he had seen. In time, when they received the tent, our ancestors carried it with them under Joshua's leadership. They took possession of the land from the nations whom God expelled This tent remained in the land until the time of David. God approved of David, who asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built a house of God. This, this just by the way, as an aside, makes me feel better because I feel like he has ADD and he's trying to grab all these little moments. And so that's why I like this guy. Anyway, however, the Most High doesn't live in houses built by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, and where is my resting place? Didn't I make all things with my own hands? So he's he's trying to help them understand that God does not live in temples. This is Stephen, 30 years before the writer of Hebrews is talking to this group of people. And then he kind of changes tact. And then he says, you stubborn people. In your thoughts and hearing, you are like those who have had no part in God's covenant, yet you continuously set yourself against the Holy Spirit, just like your ancestors did. Was there a single prophet your ancestors didn't harass? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and you've betrayed and murdered him. That would have been enough. Like if that was me, that would have been enough. But he carries on. He like really goes for it. You received the law given by angels, but you haven't kept it. Once the council members heard these words, they were enraged and began to grind their teeth at Stephen. That's an interesting thing. My family says that I do something similar. And so I'll grind my teeth. And they say, are you okay? I say, I'm fine. She says, you're grinding your teeth. I'm like, I'm not saying anything. She says, but you're grinding your teeth. I'm not saying anything, but you're grinding. And so you can see how helpful that conversation is. They're grinding their teeth at Stephen. Verse 55, but Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stared into heaven and saw God's majesty. With Jesus standing at God's right side, he exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the human one or the son of man standing 
at God's right side. At this they shrieked, covered their ears, together they charged at him, threw him out of the city and began to stone him. The witnesses placed their coats in the care of a young man called Saul. As they battered him with stones, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, accept my life. Falling to his knees, he shouted, Lord, don't hold the sin against them. And then he died. Wow. This is the sermon, and the death of Stephen is what caused what's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Christian faith outside of Jerusalem, because now people were being murdered for their faith. I mean, it takes a lot of intentionality to take your coat off to hand it to someone so that you can be unrestricted as you pick up a stone to stone someone, why were they so angry? Well, you've got to understand that then in those days, what, what, there's three things that, that Stephen is saying to these guys. You have not kept the law. He literally says this to them in verse 53. You received the law given by angels and you have not kept it. Now, the whole point of what they were saying is like, we are high priests. We are the council. We aren't just Jewish. We are good Jews. And he's saying, no, you, you haven't kept the law. This also reminds me, as, as you listen to him speaking, and I was talking to Sarah about this earlier this morning. Those of you that are parents will know this. Do you remember the first time your children tried to teach you something? Right? And, and there was this sense of condescension. Now, I'm not talking about technology. I need my children to teach me how to use Instagram and those kinds of things. But, but here's this person. He's not a council member. He's not a priest. He's not a member of the Sanhedrin. He's not a member of the upper class. And he's saying that I have access to God. And you have not kept the law. The thing that you say sets you apart and you intentionally set yourself apart from other people, you haven't done that. Remember the writer of Hebrews says the law was delivered by angels and they didn't follow it. Then he says, you are no better than Gentiles. You stubborn people in your thoughts and hearing, you are like those who have had no part in God's covenant. Another translation says, you stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. I said this before, as a Jewish man, you would wake up and one of your prayers is you would thank God uh, that you were not a Gentile and that you were not a female. And they would be called Gentile dogs. And so he's saying, you haven't kept the law and you're just like Gentiles. And then he goes in kind of for the kill shot. And he looks up. This, so now they've started to grind their teeth at him. He looks up and he says, I can see, enabled by the Spirit, he saw God's majesty and Jesus standing at God's right side. And he exclaimed, look, I can see heaven on display and the human one, the Son of Man, standing at God's right hand. And at this, they shrieked and covered their ears, very mature. And together, they charged at him. What was he saying? Just remember, heaven was only connected to earth within the context of the temple, and not just within the context of the temple, only on one day when the high priest, not just any priest, when the high priest would go in there. Now, there was no longer any separation. That meant that anyone could be mediated and anyone could have the experience of seeing God and they did not need a high priest to be able to do that. 
All they needed was to be able to see Jesus, that this insignificant man had access to the throne of God. And today, we have similar responses. Now, we probably are not going to get people grinding their teeth at us or shrieking and blocking their ears or running at us, but we, we have people that get really upset. And part of the truth of this is that because unbelief is not neutral or ambivalent, the writer of Hebrews tells us that unbelief is disobedience. And so today, we still have some of these responses when we speak of the gospel of grace. I mean, what... What are people angry about today? I'll tell you what, what I'm angry about today. Not very angry about. What I'm annoyed about is the whole Kelsey Swift thing. That thing is so annoying to me. Okay? I don't know why it's annoying. I tell you, no, I know exactly why it's annoying to me. Okay? Because for ages, I've tried to get you guys interested in football. For ages, right, Costell? For ages. I've used illustrations about football, and then three weeks ago, uh, Jason uses some little Swifty reference, and all of you get it, you know, because you're all engaged with Taylor Swift. And now, now, she stepped into my world, and I don't want her in that world. You know, I've, I've made choices to not be in that world. I don't want to be in that world. And when I watch football with my friends, I don't want the TV screen flipping over to her, pretending like she knows what just happened. I don't want to see that. I'm upset. I'm annoyed. I'm grinding my teeth. I'm blocking my ears, and I want to run at the TV, okay? Thank you. I feel a lot better, actually. A lot better. More seriously, though, those that claim relationship with Jesus, and even those that are outside of the faith, they still grind their teeth, block their ears, and want to silence the true gospel. And one of the things that I think about is like, okay, if, if you don't believe in God, if you're an atheist, then I don't understand why you're so angry. Um, and and C.S. Lewis, in his quote, says, because he was an atheist who came to faith, he says, at this time, living like so many atheists or anti-theists in a world, sorry, in a world of contradictions, I maintained that God did not exist, but I was also very angry with God for not existing. I was equally angry with him for creating a world. And so, those of you that maybe came out of Atheism, which in and of itself is a faith, because you're believing that there is no, no faith, so there is a belief in that. But this sense in which I thought to myself, okay, um, I can't get angry at fairies if I don't believe fairies exist. It's like, well, what's the point of me getting angry at fairies? But I think what I realize is this, is like, I'm, I'm not angry at fairies. I'm angry at people who believe in fairies. And I think... Those of us that have atheist friends, they're not necessarily angry at God, but they're trying to piece together how you can believe what you believe and live in the way in which you live. And I think oftentimes those contradictions is what makes that anger a little bit easier for people. Because we believe in a God of grace and love and truth, and yet in their worldview, their actions, those things don't match. So I'm not necessarily angry at the fairy, you know, which may as well be God, but angry at the people that believe in fairies. But I think those who claim an openness to Christianity, 
and even those who maybe are in the church and are angry at some of the deep truths of the gospel are angry at the core issues of the gospel. Tuesday was Halloween, right? What else do we celebrate on Tuesday? Reformation Day, thank you, okay? That's what we celebrate on Tuesday. Reformation Day is a a celebration of when a monk uh, took um, took the thesis that he had written and he nailed it to the Wittenberg door. And he said basically, this is not the true gospel. This is the true gospel. And out of that, we have what we call the five solas of the Reformation. So in in a similar way, What Martin Luther did on October 31st is what Stephen was attempting to do with the high priest and the Sanhedrin. He's saying, this is not what God had in mind. And so out of that, we have the five solas. I went on vacation a couple weeks ago with Matt, and he has all these tattoos on both of his arms. And so he has the five solas tattooed on his arm, and one of them is misspelled. Not anymore, but it was misspelled, okay, because it's Latin, and they go like this. Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. Solus Christus, which means Christ alone. Sola Fide, which is faith alone. Sola Gracia, which means grace alone. And Sola Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. This is the one he had misspelled. Okay, this one right here. He went to the tattoo artist, and the tattoo artist wrote Sola Fida. And, uh, and so he said to him, well, what do I do with that? He said, okay, this is what you've got to do. You've got to get a little uh, scalpel and just scratch that A off, and then when it heals, you've got to come back to me, and then I'll put the E back on, you know? Anyway, nice story, Nick. So, um, <laughs> so what does this have to do with the writer of Hebrews? Well, the writer of Hebrews does not directly mention the five solas. Why? It hadn't happened yet, okay? So he doesn't directly mention that it is by Scripture alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, Christ alone, and all to the glory of God. However, when you read through Hebrews, every one of these doctrines keeps circling again and again and again. It's not what you do, it is your faith in Jesus. Hebrews 11, when we get there, the whole thing is about what faith is and what it isn't. It is by the grace of God that you have been welcomed in. It is only through Jesus. The word of God is living and active and all of these things are covered in the book of Hebrews. And yet this is what makes people so mad about the gospel. We look at the idea of scripture alone, there is massive offense that when you declare that the Bible is the ultimate and sole authority for Christian life and practice, you get a lot of grinding of of teeth, you get a lot of closing of ears, and you get a lot of running at. When you say that Christ alone, Jesus Christ, is the only mediator between God and man, the only path to salvation, you get a lot of this. You get a lot of grinding of teeth. It's ridiculous that you would say that it is only faith in Jesus Christ alone, not any human work that leads you into relationship with God, but simply an expression of faith in what he has done. It can't be that easy. What about grace alone? It's inconceivable that human beings are incapable of doing anything to earn or deserve the grace of God and his extraordinary pursuit of us in Jesus Christ. It cannot be that way. 
To God alone be the glory. Every one of our actions, including faith and good works, our decisions, how we live our life, everything we do should be done for the glory of God. Why? We are not our own. We have been purchased with a price. We belong to him. It's not about us. That's not a popular message, even for people within the church. So the challenge to these truths, when we look at Scripture alone, the reason why people grind their teeth and close their ears is because this is too pedantic and nitpicky. I mean, do you, do you know when the Bible was written? You know, it was, it was written over a series of people, and a bunch of people just wrote the stuff down. Now, go back and listen to what we talked about in terms of the Word of God being living and active. So that's the pushback we get in terms of Scripture alone. No, it is the Bible Not church tradition, which is what Martin Luther was saying. Not this system of laws and priests and everything. It is the Bible alone that tells us how we can have relationship with Jesus. Too pedantic, too nitpicky. When we say it is Christ alone, only through Jesus, then we are too exclusive, too restrictive. How can you say that? There are other people that don't believe what you believe but are as good as you. Because it's not about that. It's about the fact that we are placing our faith in the only person that is a mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Which is also why, as the church, we have been mandated to tell people about this mediator. It's why we've been mandated, commissioned to go out and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them everything you know, because there is only one way, and it's through Jesus Christ. When we say, through faith and grace alone... What we're then saying is, no, no, that is too inclusive. Are you telling me that all someone has to do is believe in the claims of Jesus, that he was the Son of God, that he came down, that God in the form of human being came down, died, was resurrected, ascended, and if I believe that and confess that with my mouth, I have a relationship with Jesus, yes, because it is faith alone. No, no, that's too inclusive. By grace alone. So everything that I've done, I don't need to pay for? No. He has paid for it. Every wrong decision I've made, I don't need to somehow fix it before I come to Jesus? No. He has taken care of it. It is His grace that enables you to step in. And ultimately, probably what we don't like the most is that when we live according to the fact that God alone is the glory We're accused of being a people that are too prescriptive. God doesn't get the glory when you abuse your workers. God doesn't get the glory when you abuse your husband. God doesn't get the glory when you treat your body like a wonderland. God doesn't get that glory. I know. I don't know whose song that is. I really hope it's not hers. So... So we see this... And we look at Stephen, and we know that Stephen wasn't talking about these things. We know that this is something that Martin Luther, God gave him a revelation. And we know that he didn't necessarily think of these things, but it came out of the Reformation that ultimately, what is relationship with Jesus all about? It's about the fact that if I want to understand the story of God, this is where it is. And only here. If I want peace with God, it is only through Jesus. If I want to enter that relationship, it is by grace and faith. And Ephesians says, even that gift of faith, the ability to reach out to God, is something that God has given you because of his gracious nature. He has pursued you. And the reason we do that 
is so that we can give glory to our Redeemer. So when Jesus, when Jesus is seated at the right hand of God and when Stephen sees him there, he sees all of these things. I didn't have to do anything. I am proclaiming Jesus Christ. We don't like to talk about the reality of our sinfulness. However, there's this inescapable truth that if it were not for the reality of our sinfulness, we would not need to understand just how powerful these five things are. Unless we realize that we're burdened with sin and we have a desire to be free from it, the gospel is not good news. Because in order for there to be good news, there needs to be bad news. You are separated from God. The good news is that union with God is not as complicated as you think. That union with God is literally a belief in your heart and a confession of your mouth away. That is, that is all. We are not worthy to be in God's presence, but we are not worthless. We've talked about this before. If we were worthless, then God would not have come in the form of Jesus to pursue us in order to make us whole. We're created in God's image, marred by sin. And his pursuit of us means that he wants to be in relationship with us and makes us holy so that we have access to his throne of grace. There is this, this offense that the good person holds when he hears that. There's this offense that the church-going person holds when he hears this. There's massive offense that if we think that we are sinful and broken and we cannot fix ourselves, we deny that because no one wants to feel like that. But when we deny that, we deny the fact that we can be rescued by God's amazing and redeeming and restoring grace. And all we need to do is say, I, I need this. I need Christ alone can restore me to the Father by faith alone, by grace alone. And the reason I want that is not just to have a nice buttoned up life because your life won't be nicely buttoned up if you ascribe to those things because the world doesn't live in that way like Brittany told us. The currents move in different directions. But I want my life to outlive me for a purpose that is bigger than my own. I want to, the, I want to live for only the glory of God. Band, you can come up. If we deny and reject the fact that we are so deeply and completely loved, and we deny and reject the fact that we are sinful at the same time, we deny and reject our need for a savior. But if we accept that we are deeply flawed and deeply loved, then we can open our hearts to a relationship that changes us as we become more Christ-like then the message that we are made in the image of God, that we're eternally flawed because of original sin, but God has pursued us in the grace, love, and power, and truth of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and prophets, just like the writer of Hebrews has said, that we have an opportunity to be restored from the pain that was caused us by the sin of others perpetrated on us, and we have an opportunity to be forgiven of the sin and autonomy that we choose to live our lives from. That is good news. That we have the opportunity to be empowered by the Spirit to live in submission to Jesus, to the glory of God the Father. So how do we proclaim this, knowing that people will be upset? The four pillars of Mercy Commons, we revel in the mercy of God, we proclaim the mercy of God, 
We demonstrate the mercy of God and we participate in acts of mercy. So how do we proclaim? Well, we do it in the way that Stephen did. We do it respectfully but boldly. Stephen responded, brothers and fathers, a term of respect. But he didn't, he didn't tone down the truth. You can be respectful and be very clear about what the truths of Scripture are. You don't need to get into name-calling. You don't need to, need to get cynical and sarcastic. You can be exactly what Jesus was, respectful, gracious, but bold and truthful. We need to fix our gaze on Jesus. Stephen, enabled by the Holy Spirit, stared into heaven and saw God's majesty and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, I can see heaven on display and the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. The writer of Hebrews says this, But we see Jesus. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, and he's crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he tasted death for everyone. Ultimately, when you're involved in some side conversation about some secondary or tertiary element of the gospel, this is the primary aspect of the gospel. We speak respectfully and boldly, and we speak of Jesus who fills our gaze. He is the one who is crowned with glory and honor because he tasted death for everyone, and he can taste death for you. And then finally, we rehearse the gospel. And this is hard. I'm willing to guess that none of us are going to be in a position where people are literally gnashing their teeth, shrieking at us, and throwing stones at us. However, I know that we will be in positions where those things happen through Twitter, through your job, through opportunities, where because you stand firm on the grace of God, that you're going to receive opposition. And I want to say this, the most powerful thing that you can model is a forgiveness without an emotional stuntedness. I'm not, I'm not talking about these things don't matter. I'm not talking about the fact that you shut off your emotions. I'm saying this, if you can model the forgiveness that you have received towards other people, it will help them see Jesus high and lifted up, crowned with glory and honor. If you're able to offer what you have received to people that have intentionally harmed and wounded you without being emotionally stunted, that is an explanation of the gospel. If you can send someone away debt-free because you were sent away debt-free, that is an explanation of the gospel. Our actions, like our words, display and proclaim the gospel. And I land with this, 1 Peter 3 Regard Christ the Lord and hold him holy in your hearts. Whenever anyone asks you to speak of your hope, be ready to defend it. Do this with respectful humility, maintaining a good conscience. Act in this way so that those who malign your good lifestyle in Christ may be ashamed when they slander you. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews tells us this. We have this. As a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, we have a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that right now you are seated at the majesty of God on high. 
You're making intercession for us. You're mediating for us. That even right now, you're providing help to those who need help in their time of need. Right now, you're providing grace and mercy. Right now, you're actually inviting us to receive that grace and mercy. I want to thank you that we don't have to come to a temple. We don't have to light a candle. We don't have to do these things. All we need to do is come to you, our Lord and Savior, and say, I need help. And if there are people here that have yet to taste of the magnificent grace of God, I pray, my God, Spirit of God, that you would give them the gift of grace and faith. I want to pray that they would be able to say, Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the life I could not live, died the death I deserved to die, was raised ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of the God. That if I confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I will be saved. It is that simple. Spirit of God, I pray that you would give us just a fresh recognition and understanding of the gift that we've received. I want to pray that you would open our eyes to see you in glory, to see you high and lifted up, to see you not only as the one that rescued and redeemed us, but the one that welcomes us into the Father's presence. Jesus, as we worship you, I want to pray, Spirit of God, give us boldness, give us kindness, give us grace, give us truth. Help us to make a difference in the world you've called us to live in. We ask this for your glory always in Jesus' name. preaching, I was just reminded of um, in the evenings when Mitch and I pray with our son Kingston, who's two, um, we'll often allow him to to kind of lead that, (laughs) um, lead the prayer. And he'll always say, uh, thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, baby Jesus. Um, and And I am always quick to say like, okay, yes, but like, what do you want to pray about like is there something else you want to add to that like something that you want to pray for and he'll just be like thank you god thank you jesus thank you baby jesus and um it just reminded me that um i think often we we want to add on and like what's the thing that i'm benefiting from especially us who have been christians for a long time it's like what's the what's the thing that i'm like how is this enriching my life but actually it's it's the relationship that we get with Jesus, that we can actually be in his presence. And we don't have to come, you know, uh, there's not this barrier. The temple isn't there anymore. We have access to God. Um, we can be in relationship with him. We can, we can pray to him, um, not to ask for things, not to even thank him for the things or the people that we have in our lives, but for him and his presence that is actually, we have access to that. One of the things we do to remind ourselves that we have access is itself a symbol and a sign of the meal that we will enjoy in heaven. Um, 
and that is the, the communion table or the Lord's table. And um, I want to invite you, if you're a Christ follower, to um, go to the table, to take those elements, to come back to your seat, and we'll take communion together. hold in our hands bread and wine that cannot save us. It is not the act of taking this meal that somehow makes God smile upon us and make us acceptable. It's what this represents to us and the exchange of our hearts where we say, I believe that it's Jesus' body broken for me and his blood shed for me that gives me access to the throne room of God's grace where I can ask for help in my time of need. So let's take the body of our Lord Jesus. This cup represents the blood of our Savior Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray for two groups of people. The one from our time of worship where things are not well and you want to be able to say it is well. You want someone to be able to pray with you, walk with you. I want to invite you to receive prayer on my left to your right. I also want to pray for those who maybe have actually taken this meal for the first time, understanding that you've placed your faith in Jesus, uh, that this means that he is your Lord and Savior. I would love to have the privilege of praying for you. And then as Mitch and Michaela said, for us that have been in the church environment for a while, maybe you've lost your sense of privilege of the easy access you have to God and you just need a fresh reminder of that through the Holy Spirit. We would love to pray for you. God, we thank you so much that you're, you're not just a symbol, you're not just a shadow or a copy. Uh, we have direct relationship with you. You are living and moving and working among us all the time. And we just pray that yeah, we wouldn't see you as a symbol or a copy, but we would know that you are real and you're alive. And we pray that that would compel us to be more like you and to show the rest of the world the amazing things you've done in our lives. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Mercy Commons. Um, you are formally dismissed. We will be having donuts and coffee out the t double doors and around the corner all the way to the back of the YMCA. And as Nick always says, go out and be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, 
visit our website at mercycommons.church.